And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, February 9th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how to avoid wearing a Walmart greeter's vest after you retire. Plus, a year in, the VA is calling its new insurance program a success. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, cockroaches stormed the Marine Corps and drove Marines right out of their barracks. The infestation occurred last week at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. It's cold showers for service members at the Marine Corps Air Station Miramar in California for the last couple of months, and mold plagues housing at Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington. Well, now Congress is demanding action to fix crumbling military housing. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis has more. And let's begin with what they're doing already in DOD with cockroaches, cold showers, and mold. Housing and military bases has been plagued by maintenance issues for a long time. Over the last couple of years, there have been provisions included in the National Defense Authorization Act to improve military barracks. For example, the creation of a tenant bill of rights provision that was included in the 2020 NDAA. That bill of rights helps tenants understand their rights before moving in. It provides transparency on historical issues with the unit, and it also gives guidance on how to address those issues. DOD has been increasing oversight of their privatized housing, even though there are still a lot of gaps, like there's not enough data to go off of, performance metrics are insufficient, there is no well-defined standards for health and safety in the barracks. But this recent report from the Government Accountability Office has drawn a lot of outrage from Congress and an admission from the Pentagon that living conditions are just simply unacceptable. Here's Congressman Mike Waltz from the House Armed Services Committee. This GAO report just showing these photos from on the conditions of barracks across the military apartments, I hope has been a real wake-up call for our leadership. I mean, we have, by my count, 500 installations, 500,000 buildings, 9,000 unaccompanied housing facilities that we're trying to fund and manage. The GAO visited just 10. I don't even know what they would have seen if they could have gone to all of them. I don't think anybody on this committee or any of you are expecting our service members to live in the Taj Mahal. I don't think that's their expectation. But this is disgusting. This is unsatisfactory. And Waltz wasn't done. Would any of you want your children in these kind of conditions with mold, with feces, with broken sewage lines? I wouldn't. And this is just a small, small sample of what we're managing or telling their high school buddy or their cousin or whomever, this is a service you got to join. You're overseas, you're deployed, you come back home. You want a washing machine and a dryer that works. You want a decent facility to go back to. And I can't even imagine what this is doing to unit morale. Um, you can hear frustration and Congress really wants action. The DOD is taking a lot of steps this year to fix some of the issues. For example, Brendan Owens, he's the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Installations, Energy and Environment. He said that DOD established a TIGER team that will be addressing fiscal 2024 defense policy bill 
provisions and the issues that were highlighted by the Government Accountability Office's audits. The FY24 NDA provisions and the recommendations in the GAO's report have been instrumental in shaping the priorities of a Tiger team we stood up earlier this month. The Tiger team will focus on determining new configuration and habitability standards, improving accessibility, availability, and reliability of UH metrics, developing standardized preventive maintenance plans, and identifying opportunities to improve quality of life and resilience. All right, so she read that one pretty well then. The NDAA for 2024, what housing provisions are actually in there, Anastasia? The bill will require the Secretary of Defense to enforce standards for unaccompanied housing facilities regarding design, floor, space, and level of maintenance required, which was one of the recommendations by the GAO. The Secretary of Defense will also have to issue rules for managing work orders related to maintenance work. And again, all of this was highlighted by the GAO. The bill will also require the establishment of a civilian employee at the housing office at each military installation to oversee unaccompanied housing facilities and related issues. That one was big. And by the way, are they talking about government-owned housing as well as the leased properties where a contractor comes in and operates on base? They were talking about both, and they were talking a lot about the privatized housing. There are a lot of initiatives happening within the service branches to improve the privatized housing. Because, again, what was highlighted by the GAO report is that there is not enough oversight by the DOD. Right. And this is where service members in the contracted housing, they're paying rent to be there. Yes. Mm -hmm. But they're a captive audience because that's the housing that's there on base. Exactly. They can't move across the street because they have a kidney-shaped swimming pool on the other place, and this one has a (laughs) rectangle. Now, we heard some promises from the deputy secretary. What have they been doing so far? What did the services say they've been doing to improve housing? Again, this problem goes back years. Just yesterday, the Navy announced that they're doing a wall-to-wall inspection of all their barracks around the world. This should help them get an assessment of, of their inventory and get a better understanding of the conditions of all of their barracks. Those inspections should be done by March 15th, and uh, we will have a better idea what the Marine Corps barracks are like around the world. The Air Force is investing $1.1 billion in its dorms program this year. It's tripled the investment over the previous five years, ending fiscal 2021. It's their largest dorm investment in over a decade. So that was a big announcement. Also, the department's infrastructure council will provide oversight on everything from investments to implementation to implementation of uh, different policy initiatives like like the Airman Dorm Leadership Program. Here's Ravi Chaudhry, the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Installations, Energy and Environment. We're pulling out all the stops to address GAO findings. We're also accelerating efforts in privatized housing. And I can sum up our efforts in three words, oversight, accountability, and where appropriate, enforcement. Yeah, and again, okay, great. But this has been a problem that's been lingering for several years now. Did anyone like lose a job maybe over this? Have any contractors been hauled in? I mean, consequences. Congressman Waltz asked Brendan Owens, the Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, for Installations, Energy, and Environment, if anyone has been dismissed 
or if anyone has been held accountable uh, since accountability was such a prevalent theme during this hearing. And Owen said that no one, um, as of right now, uh, no one has been dismissed as a result of the latest GAO report. Yeah, I wonder why in each installation there's not somebody reporting to the commander, the commandant, whoever it might be running that one for those 18 months or two years designated to run around and look at housing as part of the regular job. They look at garages, I'm sure, and and logistics installations. Why not housing? Yeah, I think that's what they're really trying to improve this year. Uh, from everything that they that they said during the hearing, I, they did put a big emphasis on the fact that they want to have some oversight. Um, and also, Congressman Waltz also said something like the military should get out of the hotel management business so what he was trying to get at was let's let's find designated people to take care of this and let the military to do their jobs federal news network's anastasia obis thanks so much thank you tom and be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com still to come a year in and the veterans affairs department is calling its new insurance program a success this is the federal drive with tom temen here on federal news radio part of the federal news network Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. It's not every day the Veterans Affairs Department comes up with a new insurance program. In fact, last year was the first time in 50 years. For a progress report and what it took to launch it, we turn to the Executive Director of the Insurance Service at the Veterans Benefits Administration, Dan Keenahan. Mr. Keenahan, good to have you with us. Morning, Tom. Thanks for having me on. All right. This new program is called What Exactly and Who Is It Designed to Serve? So the VA, or the Veterans Affairs, has launched Veterans Affairs Life Insurance, or as we like to call it, VA Life. And it's open to all service-connected veterans aged 80 and under with any level of service-connected disability, 0% to 100%. And for veterans who are age 81 and older, they need to apply for a service-connected rating before they turn age 81. And then they have a two-year timeline to request enrollment. So basically anybody under 80 can have this life insurance? Correct. Anyone with a service-connected rating. We launched this program in response to a call from veterans and veteran service organizations who were looking for a life insurance program that didn't have time limits uh, to sign up and had higher levels of life insurance coverage available than what we had currently offered. This one is a whole life insurance program that goes up to $40,000 in increments of $10,000. Got it. And when you say they have to have a veteran's rating, what does that mean exactly? So when uniformed service members separate from their uniformed service, they have an opportunity to apply to the Department of Veterans Affairs Veterans Benefit Administration for a service-connected rating on a disability that may have been incurred during their service. And we provide the life insurance that supports veterans who have these service-connected ratings. We also provide life insurance for those who currently serve. And we have 11 different programs that provide life insurance, including service members group life insurance and veterans group life insurance, which total about $1.5 trillion of coverage across 5.6 million lives. 
This new program, though, is only for those with some degree of rating. Correct. Because everybody is insured at some point in their military career. I remember, you know, when my father passed away at 92, long after serving in World War II, just a few years ago, we got a check from Veterans Affairs for $5,000. Everybody's got that. Yes. It's tremendous because our insurance service has existed for over 100 years and dates back to World War I. And in each era, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and now today, we have introduced different life insurance programs in order to meet the needs or the changing needs of our veterans and their survivors. And it's unique because service-connected veterans aren't always eligible for commercial life insurance. And VA provides this as a means of protection to provide insurance at a rate that is commensurable with what you can find in the private sector without any additional costs due to the service-connected nature of their disability rating. Right. That was my question. This is something that is hard to obtain for those with a rating commercially because commercial don't want to insure people that they might have to pay out for. In general, we find that our actuaries look at what's available in the private sector and then how can we provide something that you know meets or is better than the value that's provided to honor not only the service of the service member, but to be able to help them you know, see it as a benefit that they've earned through their service. We're speaking with Dan Keenahan. He's the director of the insurance service at the Veterans Benefits Administration. And this was in reaction to a congressional statute, a law passed to create this program a couple of years ago. Yes, the law was enacted in 2022, and we worked with the Congress in order to implement it in a way that provides a superior customer experience. We've seen automation of the application process at levels that are higher than 93% this calendar year alone, and we've integrated it with VA Profile in order to ensure that you know veterans don't have to put in unnecessary information, and veterans are known customers and we can be able to meet their needs. We've had some veterans who sign up saying this is the easiest benefit they've ever applied for with the VA. And we found that veterans are very responsive to the online tool, especially when it comes to updating their beneficiaries for life-changing events. And we appreciate you know, the support of the Congress as this was, as you mentioned, uh, part of the Johnny Isaacson and David Rowe Veterans Healthcare and Benefits Improvement Act of 2020. And how many people have signed up so far? We've had over 34,000 veterans sign up for this. And it's really exciting because just after one year of the program being available, we've achieved over $1 billion of coverage. Okay. And you called it whole life. And that's an instrument that you don't find that much anymore commercially almost like a savings that has value at the end and it accrues, I guess you'd call it equity over time. Those are not very common anymore in the commercial market. We offer both term life and whole life, and we work with veteran service organizations and veterans in order to provide education as to how insurance can complement their overall financial planning. Whole life is a way for veterans to be able to invest in their future because VA life builds cash value after the first two years. It also, unlike term life insurance, has fixed premiums, which means the younger you are when you sign up, that is the premium that you will pay for the rest of your life. 
Unlike term life insurance, when costs often increase in five-year increments. And then finally, the real value is that there's a cash component to this. And so veterans like to know, you know that there might be some longer-term value. There's an interest earned against that cash value. And then not yet for VA life, but for our existing programs, veterans are able to take loans against that cash value. Or when the policy matures, they actually get that cash value returned to them as a matured endowment. And so it's part of an overall financial planning picture for veterans that is an alternative to term life. And how does it work for Veterans Benefits Administration? That is to say, do you simply offer this, but there's a commercial outfit that's actually operating it in the background, or is VBA its own insurance company? And if so, how come you don't have a 100-story skyscraper somewhere? So I'm really pleased to say we have a few more than 300 VBA employees who work primarily out of Philadelphia who service all these policies. We have our actuaries, we have our financial team, we have our policy holder services, we have our own phone center, and we run it efficiently enough that we're able to provide it at a value that meets or exceeds what's available in the private sector. Unlike the private sector, we don't need a 100-story skyscraper in order to let people know we're here, but we find veterans and survivors really appreciate the customer experience that we give them. And we're really seeing positive returns through trust scores, through what we call V-signals, which is our customer experience data. And veterans are really trusting VA to provide high quality life insurance, just like when they were in uniform, we previously provided their life insurance coverage. And within VBA then, is there a fund of dollars somewhere so that when you do have to pay out a benefit, a death benefit, that it's there. So based on our actuarial determinations, we build up a cash reserve. And so this program was designed in order to be fully self-supporting. And so that means the more veterans that sign up, uh, the better it is going to support other veterans over time. And we're very efficient and effective in being able to deliver benefits that the veterans are able to count on and, and, and trust the VA to have that, that value there. Dan Keenahan is director of the insurance service at the Veterans Benefits Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a progress report on federal use of artificial intelligence. But first, how to avoid wearing a Walmart greeter's vest after you retire. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Retirement is supposed to mean you don't have to work anymore, or at least only work because you want to. Your main question is how much income is enough for you to retire? Here with some answers, federal retiree Abe Grungold of AB Financial Services. And, I mean, how much you need depends on a lot of things, doesn't it, Abe? Tom, it really does. It varies from person to person, and whether you're married or single, But it's funny, even when I've been retired now for two years, my wife will still ask me, do we have enough money to retire on? And really, the goal for every individual should be at a minimum 80% 
of your pre-retirement income. So it should be 80% of your gross. That is a good number to start with. Yeah, so that means the type of life you can have in retirement is, unless you're really, really good at investing and saving, will be in some relation to how you lived while you were working. Exactly. You know, if you could pay your bills now based on your salary, and you should be able to pay your bills in retirement. Now, it's also important and it also depends on your lifestyle because when we retire, we spend more. And a big factor is your health. The other factor that you really have to consider is how much debt are you going to carry with you into retirement? And that's crucial. Maybe it's more crucial how much debt you're willing to carry into the grave because then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Yes. Unfortunately, a lot of people like to buy large ticket items when they retire, a retirement home, motorcycle. Now you're talking. A boat. That's fine. That's great. It's wonderful. But you have to make sure that is within your budget and you should be starting your budget for retirement five years prior to retiring. You should get in the habit of seeing on a monthly basis how much are you making, how much are you spending, and will you have enough income in retirement? And these numbers, these income numbers would be coming from your FERS annuity. It'd be coming from Social Security, your thrift saving plan, your personal savings, and if you want to, uh, employment in retirement. Right. Some people choose to do some work in retirement, but it should be something you choose to do, maybe not something you have to do. People, it's very important in retirement to be active, both mentally and physically. And a lot of uh, federal retirees do a part-time job in retirement just to keep them active mentally and physically now i know a lot of people a lot of co-workers clients of mine who had a desk job in the government they don't want to be sitting at a desk in retirement they want to do something physically active and a great job is a school crossing guard it's a part-time job you're out there physically walking around you're doing something good for the community and you're also earning some part-time income so these are important things for a lot of retirees to do yeah for that matter even if the income is slight you could probably volunteer in jobs similar to that yes for for those retirees who really do not have to worry about their financial income volunteering is very important i do a lot of volunteering uh, in addition to my business, and it really uh, helps me feel good about myself, and uh, it, it's an excellent way to give back to the community. It's a, it's a great way. Well, you're definitely the type of person I would want to referee my pickleball tournament. <laughs> I would be more than fear, Tom, more if I... than fear, but I don't know. My eyesight is not as good as it once was. <laughs> <laughs> well, my pickleball is not existent at all. I've never touched one. And getting back to that budget idea, doing a detailed budget over a period of time can also maybe show up areas where you could probably cut back. 
a little bit without really harming your lifestyle. Yes, there are many ways that you can cut back. You know, you have to really think about your spending. Like, if you still have cable, maybe you ought to think about doing some uh, streaming services, which are much less than the cable service. If you have a home telephone, maybe it's something you don't need anymore in retirement. You can just rely on your cell phone. You have to take a look at your insurance, auto insurance, life insurance, and see whether it's a good idea to shop around. These are great ways to save an extra few hundred dollars here and there, and they add up quickly. They do. We're speaking with Abe Grungold. He's retired federal manager himself and owner of AB Financial Services out of Florida. And you said start thinking about this five years in advance. I mean, most people probably don't think about it till about six months to go and they wake up and say, holy jumping Jehoshaphat, what am I going to do here? Yes, really. You should be thinking about it five years ahead of time. You should be looking to see where that retirement income stream is going to come from what your expenses are going to look like in retirement, and you really need to focus on this five years ahead of time and have a good plan going into retirement. Now, the the thing that's also very important when you are calculating these numbers are what I call the unknown factors when you retire. The unknown factors are healthcare, long-term care, grandchildren, and inflation. So if you want to provide for your grandchildren, where is that money going to come in your budget? If you know you have to deal with health care issues, and we most people do when they retire, you have to have an emergency fund to handle medicines, uh, medical procedures, and you have to always think about inflation. And the other factor which everyone may or may not have to deal with is long-term care. And that is very expensive. That can be anywhere from seventy-five to well over $100,000 a year to be in a nursing home. Very expensive situation. Right. And if you have any assets whatsoever above a couple of thousand bucks or something beyond your home, then you will not be eligible for Medicaid, God forbid, which will cover a nursing home. It's basically the provider of last resort. Yes. The Medicaid, in order to qualify for Medicaid, you really have to be in a low income situation. And when you go to a nursing home, they're going to want a very detailed listing of all your assets, and they want to be sure that you can pay the nursing home bills, whether they're going to come from your personal savings, from your TSP, or whether you're going to be a Medicaid-eligible uh, uh, resident. So you really have to think about all these things ahead of time. Right. And for purposes of Medicaid, you can't say, oh, gosh, I'm going to give away everything to the grandkids now and then a month later become on Medicaid because they have a five-year, I believe it is, yeah. look back, right? Yes. They definitely have that five-year look back and they will 
carefully look at all those things. State has a lot of resources where they can look to see when you transferred your house to your children and when you transferred uh, your assets to your children. Now, that situation did happen with my own parents. They did it 20 years prior to them going into a nursing home, and both my parents did end up in a nursing home. So that situation was taken care of long before. And it was something that they thought of. It wasn't something that I approached them with. So, uh, you know, you really have to think of these things. It's unfortunately, but you do. And you also have to plan not only for your health care costs, but also for your minimum required withdrawal from your TSP. Now, they keep moving the goalposts on when that has to occur. I think it's now, if I'm correct, 72 or 72 and a half years old. Congress moved it up. Yes, the age is going to change over the next few years, depending on how old you are. It can be 73, and a few years later, it can be even a higher age. But yes, you do have to make required minimum distributions. Now, the TSP is going to help you make those required minimum distributions. And if you have your money sitting in a company like Fidelity or Charles Schwab, they also will help you to figure out what those numbers are. Basically, they're about 3% of your total balance. So if you have a traditional IRA, a traditional TSP, it will be about 3% of your balance. Abe Grungold is a retired federal manager and owner of AB Financial Services. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me on. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a progress report on federal use of artificial intelligence. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Over the past three months, agencies have completed 29 actions called out in the Biden administration's artificial intelligence executive order. These are just the beginning steps in the long journey for agencies to safely and securely use AI. For how agencies can accelerate AI, Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller caught up with the director of the Technology Transformation Service at the General Services Administration, Ann Lewis. One of my favorite examples is USDA's using computer vision tools for beef grading. So the AI Center of Excellence team created a successful AI machine learning model for USDA by conducting exploratory data analysis, prepping images from expertly graded subject matter experts, and then training a multi-class image classifier to correctly predict the various grading classes, like prime, choice, select, standard, et cetera. Uh, and there are so many use cases, big and small, that are like this. And in some cases, so artificial intelligence is a 15-year-old field. It's now just reached a level of maturity that we can consider broad adoption across the federal government. But there are lots of tools like that that are already available. And it's just a matter of understanding how to marry up these newly powerful, scaled-up tools with the use cases that have to do with taking vast swaths of data and making decisions about them and helping agencies figure out how do you test this, how do you prototype, how do you iteratively adopt these tools, and how do you make sure they're actually working? You know, you can't just adopt a tool and say, this is probably fine and trust it forever. You have to bring governance to tool adoption for emerging technologies at all levels. I'm so glad you brought that up because one of the things that the COE has been known for over the last year, you know, five, seven years, is 
teaching and then moving on. Uh -huh. So they would, you know, early parts of the centers of excellence would go into an agency and learn agencies about cloud. How does cloud work? And then once you once they taught, they kind of get out. Is that still the same goals with AI? Meaning we're going to help agencies understand the power of AI, where the opportunities are, how to deal with governance, all those pieces and parts you just described. Is that still where the COE goes, or are they more project and, and program based? Meaning we'll go in help on a specific six-month project, year-long project, and then move somewhere else. Those two categories of engagement have kind of merged. You can teach by doing in a lot of cases, by working with an agency to build out a prototype or show, here's what's possible. But ultimately, the agencies are going to be the ones who are leading in, in, the, uh, in the forefront of AI adoption. So what we can do is help people understand what's possible, and we can, we can do thought leadership and help them understand, like, how do you do capacity building around this at all? I find the upcoming AI revolution to be similar to what we saw with cloud maybe 10 or 12 years ago, where everybody gets that it's this big transformative thing, but they're not sure what the first steps are and then ultimately how to use it and where does it fit in this sort of like framework of, of government tech. And so the Centers of Excellence and TTS Consulting can sort of get in there and help agencies figure out what are the landscape of options, how to early adopt different pieces and parts of it in a safe way, and then empower agency leaders to make the right choices and, and, and build and deploy this technology going forward. Is one of the biggest challenges still getting folks to understand what AI can do and what AI is? A lot of people, when I talk to will say, well, AI, that's predictive analytics. People just put a, a shiny you know, code on it. Other people are still in that well, AI take my job, which <laughs> I've, I laughed too recently, right? Yeah. But, but I had someone sure. tell me, no, they, they, people are still worried about that. How, sure. how much do you hear, like, where, where are we at with this? When you talk about cloud, are we still in, you know, cloud first? And then we're going to move to cloud smart, so it's AI first, AI smart. Maybe that's a bad analogy, but... No, that's you, a great you, analogy. Okay. I mean, I think it'll be a major ecosystem shift like cloud, and perhaps like digitization of paper processes and forms was in the 90s. Uh, and I think it'll impact everything from collaboration tools to how decisions are made with data. So we have a huge opportunity for making systems work better, work more efficiently, work more fairly. And we also bring, we have a huge risk of, of trusting imperfect automation to make decisions that could create or cause harm. So like the major ecosystem changes that we've seen every 10 years or so, government agencies will be all over the map on adoption. And so managing capacity building and understanding maturity models and risk frameworks that they can use to make decisions, this will be key to successful deployment, as will bringing AI talent into government. But I love the question about, is AI going to take my job? In the 50s, my parents tell me, social scientists predicted that the pro proliferation of home appliances and machines in the consumer marketplace would take all our jobs or make all of our jobs only take 10 hours a week and we would live a life of leisure at the result. Did that happen? No, I'm, 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 I'm waiting for it. Yeah, I'm waiting for it too. So this is just another world changing major technological evolution and the structure and shape of work will certainly change. I doubt the amount of work will change. I think you know the ways in which we do our jobs will hopefully become more efficient and effective, and then we will be able to do more as a result. I got one of those robot vacuums. Yeah. It doesn't. It, it's better, but it's not perfect. I still need to vacuum the house yeah. uh, with the regular yeah. old vacuum. Has it taken over your household? I wish. Uh, no, <laughs> it has not. And uh, uh, there's other things I want to talk to you about, but let me just tag back to the AI EO real quick. I know it's important. I know you're going to tell me it's a presidential priority. I know uh, all those important things, but. Why is now having such an executive order key to this long-term impact? Given how the EO kind of lays out certain things for, uh, as mentioned, the, uh, the talent search. Mm -hmm. uh, I know there's other pieces and parts in there that really kind of focus on certain agency efforts. Why is this coming at the right time in your world? 
the tech industry has shown us that the AI revolution is here. So what government's trying to do is get uh, government leaders at the table and involved in defining the right ways of doing decision making and, and building out of governance frameworks. And we have a real opportunity to do that relatively early for, for government. And so I think this administration sees how important that is and, and they're saying, hey everyone, across government, we want you to pay attention to this. You want, we want you to understand how it works. We want to bring AI talent into government and we want to start thinking about what are the uh, effective ways that we can build public-private partnerships here and what are the governance structures and decision-making structures that we need to make that happen. So much more to talk about. I'm sure things will, as they evolve with AI, we'll have more to talk to. Let me shift over to two other big things that are happening in, in the federal tech community. Uh, one is obviously the digital services memo. This is uh, implementing uh, pieces and parts of the 21st Century Idea Act. We heard Claire Monterano talk about that. And she talked about the, the role TTS will play. Mm -hmm. Hey, here's a new memo, go do more work, TTS folks, right? That seems to be a common refrain from your friends at OMB. What are some of the roles, what are some of the things you'll be doing to help implement the digital services efforts? This is a team sport for implementation, so. Everything's a team sport, though. <laughs> we've been working very closely on. You have implementation planning and we're really excited about our role as a key implementation partner. I mean, one of the things that's really special about TTS is that almost everything that's in our very, very broad portfolio had its origins in an administration priority of some form. So we are really excited about our you know, ability to work on this and you know, inspired by uh, Claire's leadership. And this is a really important framework for website modernization. It's a pretty comprehensive list of things that you should do to build a modern website or to take an existing website and do that legacy system mo modernization process using tech industry best practices. So I've been in the tech world for about 20 years and tech companies themselves are all over the map on modernization depending on when a system was built and who adopted which technologies and how well they evolved over time. You know, whether or not companies actually prioritize handling your tech debt incrementally versus just you know waiting until something is so broken that you have to rebuild it. So I think this framework is actually very practical and handy and I think that it's one of the most important things that TTS can do is help agencies figure out how to modernize. Everybody likes that, that word, we should modernize, and then they're not sure where to start. This framework is like, okay, here are the 25 things you need to do and here's how to get started and here's how to know where you are in that, in that spectrum of like implementation planning. When I first joined government, I was surprised to discover that looking at everyone's different, you know, analytics, web analytics portals, that more than 50% of user traffic to government websites is, comes from mobile devices. And probably less than 50% of websites have ever been tested on a mobile breakpoint. So government has such a long road ahead of it in terms of figuring out how to use those industry best practices to meet people where they are and deliver services that are actually easy to use, that don't inadvertently create a bunch of digital barriers. And so the digital experience guidelines are just like an incredibly useful laundry list of best practices in language that um, government practitioners can understand and can readily use. So we're really excited to work on that guidance. Ann Lewis, director of the Technology Transformation Service at the GSA, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin.
And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, February 9th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how to avoid wearing a Walmart greeter's vest after you retire. Plus, a year in, and the VA is calling its new insurance program a success. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, cybersecurity of critical infrastructure. The Biden administration has made this a big push for agencies, but they've had mixed results so far. The water and wastewater sectors have presented some of the biggest challenges. Now the White House is reconsidering its approach to securing water networks. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And one should begin by getting us up to speed on what they've been trying to do for cyber requirements in the water sector. Yeah, the Biden administration's whole cybersecurity strategy is centered on this idea that voluntary standards and public-private partnerships haven't been enough. The Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack being a prime example of where cybersecurity and critical infrastructure fell short. And now there needs to be some minimum requirements across critical infrastructure. Uh, You know, the water and wastewater sector, they're grouped together. It's one of those sectors where regulations for cybersecurity haven't existed before. The Environmental Protection Agency last March released a rule requiring states to report cybersecurity threats to their public water systems. And it also required states to include uh, cybersecurity in the sanitary surveys that they do of water systems. And so that was a pretty big deal at the time. But several states and large water associations challenged that rule in lawsuits. They argued the EPA was essentially overstepping its bounds. And then the EPA withdrew the rule in October due to the litigation. So all this is happening as there's still been some pretty high profile hacks of water systems. And there's Iranian hackers infiltrated more than a dozen water utilities in December. And uh, now the White House officials are considering their next steps. And is the danger that somehow the hackers can get into the operational technology and turn off the water, essentially? That's right. It's, It's this concern that because so much infrastructure has been digitized and put online or connected to the Internet in recent years, these threats now exist that didn't exist before and nobody knew or took the time necessarily to consider cybersecurity. And now folks are saying we need to do that. And what is so challenging about the water sector? You've got control networks, you've got pumps, I guess, and treatment facilities. I mean, there's it's more complex than people realize. But what are some of the particular water challenges? One of the big challenges is just the sheer size of the water sector. There are roughly 50,000 water utilities across the United States. Many of those are, of course, smaller utilities that serve smaller communities uh, with less resources. Uh, The White House has been working with water associations and some of the major water companies. White House and EPA officials actually met with those groups just this week to discuss cybersecurity efforts. But Deputy National Security Advisor Ann Neuberger says, you know, there needs to be more done. She said this December cyber attacks by Iranian actors really showed the weak level of cybersecurity in some water systems. Here she is at an event this week hosted by the Information Technology Industry Council. They were able to have an impact on those water systems because they used the default password of 1111. It barely deserves to be called a cyber attack. And they affected water systems across 16 states. 
those systems were likely not designed to be connected to the internet, but over time, it was a way to download information. Perhaps it was a way for an administrator to also get his email, his or her email as they did their job. So security has to look at where products are used today and ensure that we can secure them appropriately. Hard to believe there's anybody left on the planet that can have a password and think 1111 is a proper password. Amazing. So what are the next steps now for standards and, and, uh, and practices for water systems? Yeah, uh, following that event, uh, Newberger actually briefed reporters Thursday. I asked whether those recent cyber attacks have changed the conversation around water system cybersecurity with you know states and the associations. And Newberger says the administration is considering both legislative proposals to help bolster its authorities, but they're also still looking at whether there are existing authorities that could leverage at the EPA to improve cybersecurity standards to make sure systems aren't using 1111 as a password. Right. And which is the corresponding agency for that sector in cybersecurity? That would be the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. Yes, because we have an interview coming up, too, with someone from Health and Human Services. They have issued cybersecurity practice performance goals for the public health sector or the health care providing sector. And they're voluntary, but they're out there. It seems like maybe EPA ought to go ahead and issue basic standards for water supplies. Yeah, that's a step that we've seen a couple agencies take. Uh, we've seen CISA put out voluntary cybersecurity goals as well for critical infrastructure. The Transportation Security Administration has also been able to successfully impose actual regulations on elements of the transportation sector that it oversees, oil and gas pipelines, railway operators. They now have cybersecurity requirements. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, HHS has released those voluntary goals. They're also considering how to use its existing authorities to set some requirements around cybersecurity for hospitals. So Newberger mentioned that Regulators, the regulating agencies, have really taken a lot of time to become, quote unquote, cutting edge on driving cybersecurity into their sectors. And in the EPA's case, it just didn't work last year because of the litigation. So now they may be taking a second hack at it. And the Biden administration has had some success in setting cyber requirements. Those are some examples. Yeah, that's right. TSA has certainly been the most successful during this recent push during the Biden administration to set cybersecurity requirements. And you're seeing other agencies try to do something similar. And you mentioned Iran was suspected in some of these water hack attempts. And of course, as Ann Newberger pointed out, you don't need a lot of sophistication if the password's 1111. You know, a hacker can find that program in about a split millisecond. What about the Chinese intrusions? That's what we've seen more consistently on cyber infrastructure. Yeah, that's right. It's become kind of the early 2024 cyber story of the year so far is this Vault Typhoon group uh, linked to the Chinese government has allegedly hacked into multiple U.S. critical infrastructure organizations across water, gas pipelines uh, and energy grid, the energy grid as well. And CISA, the FBI and several other agencies actually just published an advisory this week on Vault Typhoon laying out some of their tactics, techniques, and procedures. Essentially, they're being able to steal credentials and then, quote-unquote, live off the land within these networks to pre-position for disruptive cyber attacks. So a pretty significant cybersecurity threat to multiple critical infrastructure sectors. In its advisor this week, 
Agencies said these hackers may have been inside some of these systems for up to five years. So this has been an ongoing story, and they say it's still an active, uh, active targeting situation as well. Right. So there is malware embedded in there that is maybe beaconing out to China. And at the appointed time, China could push a button and disable some piece of critical infrastructure. Is the basic? Yeah, that's essentially it. Is they, they they've been able to uh, preposition access to operational control systems, which is, as agencies like CISA have said, a pretty significant escalation, going from spying, you know, on emails and data, and people stealing stealing data about people, to actual prepositioning for potentially destructive attacks. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a year in, and the VA is calling its new insurance program a success. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.